Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Today's episode is brought to you by Basecap. So I remember when, you know, really building companies as an entrepreneur, how really frustrating is when you have people missing out deadlines, there's people that are not copied on emails, and then, you know, like everyone ends up failing in the pursuit of, of, of accomplishing things. So email is really great when you're doing one-to-one conversations, but when you have a ton of people there copied, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be missing out on stuff. So for project management, I actually found Basecamp and I found it to be a really fantastic solution. You know, basically what they are is a collaboration type of uh, tool that allows people to really engage with their offer message boards, the to-dos, the schedules, their document sharing, the group chats, and other tools that are going to help you in taking the game of your company to the next level. So go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and sign up today for their 30-day free trial. And there is no credit card that is required and you can cancel at any time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So super excited about the guests that we have today. We're going to be talking about going from combat to being an entrepreneur and really, you know, all the lessons learned, you know, along the way. And, and he's done multiple companies, you know, some with more success than others, but Definitely the one that he's on right now is a rocket ship. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rick. And let's see if I pronounce it well, Luibe. Luibe, that's right. Thanks, Alejandro. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate it. So uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane, Rick. So how was life growing up and being born in Ohio? Yeah. So uh, born and raised in Southern Ohio in Cincinnati. I'd say it was uh, a very typical Midwestern lifestyle. You know, grew up in suburbia. Uh, great foundation, though. I think maybe the most inspirational part of that experience relative to what I'm doing now is my father was a small businessman, was an entrepreneur. And growing up and seeing the way he uh, had independence and, and the ability to take initiative on ideas that he had and the way he worked with his his, uh, his employees and his team members was was, was very uh, interesting to me and, and very inspiring. And so it kind of planted those seeds early on for for my desire to do what I'm doing, doing today. What did you learn there? Because obviously, you know, the, the, the father figure is, is definitely an inspiring one, especially if you see him being out there and, and making it happen. What, what was that for you like? I mean, seeing him going through the ups and the downs of, of, of controlling his own destiny. Yeah, you know, it was, it, was, it was interesting. You don't know any different, I think, when you're a kid. But, you know, watching him go through that experience, you know, he had good years and he had bad years. And, and the family uh, participated in those ups and those downs. You know, you know some years... Uh, you know, were tight and some years weren't tight and, uh, and that was okay. And you just kind of, you learn to accept uh, that bit of a roller coaster. That's just part of life. And, and, uh, and, and we're able to stay, you know, stable and happy through all those ups and downs. And, and maybe that is part of, of uh, a development of kind of the risk tolerance kind of need as an entrepreneur and seeing that experience and realizing that it's, it's all going to be okay, whether it's an up or, or a down. And, and in your case, why biology? Out of all things. Yeah, you know, um, I think I've always been really interested in understanding systems and, and things around me. And, and obviously, uh, biological systems are pretty important to, to, to us as, as, as humans. And so I think that was the initial attraction. Uh, you know, my first plan going into college was to be a veterinarian. 
So uh, you know, spent a lot of time volunteering at at, uh, at vet hospitals, and and that was really my focus. Even went on and applied and got accepted to uh, to vet school. Uh, but uh, at the same time, I had an opportunity to to go to flight school in the army, and so tough decision. But I realized I could always go back, potentially go back to vet school, but I I wouldn't have another opportunity to go to flight school. So that's the one I picked, and that sort of set me on the path that I'm that I'm on today. So how did that opportunity come knocking, you know, going into flight school and, and ending up in combat? Yeah, so I was uh, ROTC in college, you know, to help pay for school. And, and also really because I was, was really interested in the leadership experience that the military can provide for, uh, for a young officer and the adventure, you know, frankly, just, just, uh, just kind of getting, you know, out of the country, seeing the world and, and doing things that nobody else can do at, at that early uh, of a point in a, in a career. Uh, and then as part of that process, uh, was selected for flight school and that put a whole different angle on, on getting really excited about jumping into that experience. You know, came out of flight school initially as a scout pilot and, and we used to joke, you know, the mission of the scout pilot is to mark enemy positions with burning helicopter wreckage. <laughs> you know, it's an unarmed aircraft. We'd fly ahead of the attack helicopters and and look for the bad guys. And typically we, we would spot them once they started shooting at us. So then we, we could, you know, try to evade and and then call the attack helicopters or artillery, whatever the right, right system was. So uh, kind of an interesting experience early on, really fun. But you know, one cool thing about being a scout pilot is independence, right? You're out there uh, doing whatever you need to do to complete the mission. And uh, and that also sort of, I think, plays well into uh, the desire to be an entrepreneur. And also the, um, the just being with uncertainty, you know, because I mean, as you were saying, you know, just just getting shot at. You know, when you're like flying that thing. I mean, you you, you don't know if you're gonna be able to make it back. So I mean, yeah. there's that's like the biggest uncertainty that a human being can deal with. Absolutely, and and you and you you don't think about it at the time. You know, things are so. Uh, you know, I get a couple aspects. One, you're so well trained. At least I was so well trained. You're not really processing you know, fear or concern or, or any of those, those, those feelings, you're just, you're just executing the mission. You're just doing what you've been trained to do. And maybe afterwards you start to, to, to process what you've just been through. Uh, but one interesting result of that is it really puts feel, fear of failure, like in a business context, in a very different perspective. When, when you're dealing with, you know, fear of failure in combat or fear, fear of failure, you know, as a, as a pilot you know, flying missions. So, uh, I think that that experience was formative in terms of just giving a level of confidence and comfort and risk tolerance that uh, is really helping us not to No, Most likely, most likely. Now, after this experience, you went to business school. So, I mean, one, one thing that is very interesting about your journey is that you're not afraid of swinging into completely different paths. So, uh, so how do you land into the business school path? Yeah, so you know, coming out of the army about seven years active duty, uh, at that point in a typical uh, army officer's career, you you tend to go more into staff jobs for quite a while before you get back into a line unit. And I really love being in a line unit, you know, working directly with, with soldiers and and and, uh, and and actually being you know all the way into the mission and executing the mission directly. And looking at you know maybe the next eight years or so in staff jobs, I thought you know. I could keep doing this in the army or why don't I just maybe think about doing something similar in, in the business world. Uh, and so recognizing I didn't have a lot of business experience, business school seemed like a good uh, transition 
I guess, uh, mechanism for me. And so applied to business school and, and literally signed out of the army on Friday, showed up to business school on Tuesday. And I went through a little bit of culture shock, uh, you know, trying to figure out what investment banking was and what, what a VC was and how to use Excel and all those tools that are seem pretty common now, but, uh, but a great experience. And, and really the, the, you know, the folks I met there and, and the networks that I, I developed there also sort of set a different bar for what's possible. And, and, and really have allowed me to, to, to push my companies uh, pretty aggressively in really exciting directions. But you, you, you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you know, since the early days in seeing your father. And here you are in business school, you know, in Stanford, you know, one of the, the biggest incubators of entrepreneurs, the, the best entrepreneurs that we have seen in, in, in I don't know how many years, but definitely the ones that have shaped the world that we're living in. And 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 you decide to go into the consulting route. You know, that's quite uh, random. Yeah. You know, it's it's looking back on it. I don't know if it was the best decision, frankly. Uh, but at the time, I, I wanted more business experience before I really tried to tackle being an entrepreneur. And I thought consulting would be a great way to get that experience. And it really was. I mean, I got exposure to a lot of uh, a lot of businesses, a large corporate perspective, which helped, was interesting. But but doing a startup is is really quite different, and and you know the, the 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 tools you need and the energy you need aren't necessarily um, uh, improved by doing kind of a corporate experience first, and so I wouldn't say it set me back, but uh, but in retrospect, uh, I've had so much fun being an entrepreneur. Uh, I, I almost kind of wish I did it a little bit earlier. But consulting, you know, definitely gives you. A great perspective, and as you said, you know, it gives you access and exposure to to different companies and and problems that they are, you know, looking to resolve. So, so for you as a consultant, you know, what what, what perspective did it give you when it came to problem solving? You know, my specialty consulting was was manufacturing operations, and really focused on things like lean manufacturing. And I'd say I would summarize lean manufacturing philosophy with just common sense, like. If it's dumb, don't do it that way. Find a smarter way to do it. <laughs> that is a good philosophy to, to apply to any kind of business process. And so that's really helped me you know, keep things simple, uh, keep things um, relatively easy, uh, keep things always moving forward, um, focus on on value add and try to avoid non-value add if you can. I, I think that experience is, is something I still I still use every day. So, so at what point, hey, Rick, do you realize that the time has come to launch your own company. Yeah, a couple of years into consulting, I was just starting to to kind of chafe. I just wanted to go do something independent and, and really set my own destiny and really make my own decisions, find my own partners. And, you know, no knock on consulting. I, I work with great people uh, consulting and I'm still good friends with a lot of them, uh, but really had this, 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 this urge, that entrepreneurial itch was just too strong. And so another consulting colleague and I both decided to kind of jump ship at the same time and start our first startup. And we kind of stumbled into an opportunity. You know, we're talking to some VCs about an idea we had. And, and the VC basically said, uh, you know, we still don't think your idea is very good, but we think you guys as a team uh, might be a good team for a, another idea that we're working on. Would you like to join us? This, this fledgling company as co-founders and the management team. We said, yeah, sure, why not? It'd be a great experience. So we jumped into that first company, which was uh, which called HubSpan. And HubSpan, way back in the day, was doing, it was an XML translation hub, so basically IT services, something I knew absolutely nothing about. 
But from a business opportunity, it was a really interesting opportunity and kind of the fundamental business problems were the same as, as any real startup. Uh, but did that for a couple years and it was hard. You know, any startup is challenging and, uh, you know, lots of, uh, of ups and downs. And, and, and frankly, doing a startup, as you know, requires a lot of life energy and they don't all, they don't all succeed. Most fail. Yeah. And so uh, a couple years into that experience, you know, I realized that if it failed, I'd probably look back and say, boy, I wish I hadn't done this, this particular idea because it's not something I was terribly passionate about. So, so left and said, I need to do some soul searching here and figure out what, what this is, what's really going to make me successful and happy long term. And decided I needed to do something entrepreneurial that win, lose, or draw. I'd feel good about the process, feel good about the experience. And so a lot of thinking. And for me, I decided that was going to be renewable energy, something in renewable energy. And I felt like in that space, this was 20 years ago, in that space, you know, pushing the ball forward, uh, even if it didn't work out, was the right thing to do. And I could feel good about, you know, even even a company would go sideways or, or backwards uh, just because, you know, attacking the right problems for kind of for the greater good as well. And so uh, teamed up uh, with a couple of guys with a similar philosophy, uh, and we founded a company called Energy2. And Energy2 was really focused really on all kinds of things. You know, we started as a hydrogen storage business, you know, 20 years ago when the hydrogen economy was, was just a few years away. <laughs> uh, that, that didn't come to fruition very quickly, so we pivoted and became a, a gas storage business looking to store natural gas. But that was problematic because the two primary customers were utilities and the automotive industry, uh, both at the time were kind of startup killers. So we pivoted again and got into battery electric materials fairly quickly and recognized our technology platform was really good um, for a device called an ultra capacitor. So we started ultra capacitor electric materials, eventually got into lead acid battery additives and some other battery technologies. And along that way, uh, extended the technology platform into to something really cool, you know, doing a silicon carbon composite that had applications in lithium-based batteries. And that became the foundational technology that we spun out of Energy2 in 2015, and that became Group 14, which is what we're working on today. And then shortly after that, after that spin out of, of the Group 14 platform, uh, we sold Energy2 to BASF uh, in June of 2016. And, and at what point there, Rick, does it become evident that it makes sense to do a spin-off uh, instead of developing this under the Energy2 uh, umbrella. Yeah, so in that time, you know, a lot of economic uncertainty, you know, at that time, particularly for what we were doing in the battery industry. So clean tech was really hot for a while, and, and then it was really cold for a while. And in that really cold period, it was difficult to get funding. And so we had an opportunity to exit with BASF. And they were really excited about the technology, particularly for lead-acid batteries at the time. Um, it was really enabling start-stop hybrids, you know, on-off, uh, start-stop on-off uh, technology, which was important for, for the industry. It still is. And so, you know, frankly, at the time, we weren't really sure what we had uh, from a lithium uh, battery perspective, but we knew it was something we wanted to explore a little bit more. And so we were able to spin it out and, and kind of keep the entrepreneurial uh, experience going, while at the same time got a bit of an exit with that uh, that. that uh, yeah, acquisition by BSF. So the timing was 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 good for BSF to come in and, and make that offer. It made sense to us at the time. And really, at the end of the day, uh, we didn't really anticipate perhaps what the lithium-ion battery market was going to do. 
you know, five or six or seven years later. Uh, but here we are now just really have the tiger by the tail, uh, trying to just keep up tremendous growth we're seeing in the industry. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So group group 14 technologies. I mean, obviously, uh, here you are, you know, like the, the different sequence of events, you know, that needed to happen, you know, with the spin-off and everything. So I guess for the, for the people that are listening to get it, what is the business model of group 14 technologies? How do you guys make money? We are selling electrode material to battery manufacturers but it's a it's a very cool technology this allows a battery man, manufacturer to transition from a traditional lithium-ion battery to a silicon-based battery with tremendous performance enhancements so you know maybe 50 percent more energy density or in an ev context you know going from 200 miles range to 300 mile range uh, without changing anything else in the battery for all intents and purposes um, it enables uh, what we call extreme fast charging. So the capability to potentially charge a battery pack in less than 10 minutes, maybe as quickly as five minutes, which is, which is absolutely transformational for the electrification transportation. Uh, and finally, it's a good value. Uh, and so if we can really increase the energy density of these battery systems on a dollars per kilowatt hour basis, which is the way, you know, EV manufacturers think about, uh, packed cost. We can lower the cost of those packs and, and deliver some more performance. So it kind of clicks all the value propositions the consumer wants, uh, at least from an EV context. And then from a battery manufacturer perspective, our direct customers, this is a drop-in technology, no capex required. Literally, they're switching out an anode technology from traditional graphite and getting just transformational performance enhancement. And so we really see this as uh, triggering a, a, a complete shift transformation from traditional lithium-ion to silicon-based battery systems. And, and how much capital have you guys raised to date, Rick? So total, we've raised about $440 million. I mean, that's a lot of zeros uh, there, Rick. How has been the, I guess, the, the transition from going from one financing cycle to the next for a company like this one? 
Yeah, so, you know, it's been a very different path for us than I think most startups. We recognized at Energy2 that it is fundamentally difficult to get financial investors to commit to investing in battery technology. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is there are hundreds of battery technology companies just in the United States alone doing all kinds of different uh, approaches to trying to improve battery performance. And it's very difficult for financial investors to really identify which technologies are advantaged over others. And so it's a, it's a very high risk proposition to make a bet on a battery company, not really being a PhD chemist or electrochemist and being able to differentiate between uh, kind of the potential performance long-term of these different platforms. And so recognizing that that was really a, a hard road to hoe, so to speak, we focused on strategics. And so really focused on battery companies and battery materials companies, so chemical companies, who fundamentally understand battery technology and are the best position to recognize the, uh, the advantages we have from our technology platform. And so, you know, from the spin out, we had BASF already as a bit of a, of a seed investor. And then for our Series A, we brought in uh, ATL, which is you know, the world's largest battery manufacturer for consumer electronics. Uh, and we brought in uh, Shoadenko, which is one of the world's largest producer of traditional anode materials. Uh, of course, BASF is a cathode electrolyte and binder manufacturer, so a lot of battery expertise there already. And then we added uh, Cabot, uh, who is, uh, makes conductive additives for battery materials. And so for that Series A, virtually all the new investors were strategics. And most important, they were all strategic with, with specific expertise in batteries. And so they really could come and validate the technology, not just the performance, but also the strength of the IP portfolio. And, and I think perhaps most important to them, recognizing we had a fundamental scalable technology. And they could recognize that having been you know, scaled battery materials companies themselves. And then for Series B, we followed the same script. You know, we added uh, SK Group, the big Korean conglomerate, you know, not as familiar to most of us as LG and Samsung because they don't make televisions and refrigerators, but of equal size and an equal uh, kind of industrial uh, global presence. Uh, SK uh, has a division that makes batteries and a division that make uh, current collectors and other battery components. Again, tremendous deep experience in battery technologies. They also recognize the value here that we're creating and the potential. And so they let our series B and the participation from those other strategics. And so again, no new investors were, were anything other than experts in battery space, uh, truly battery materials companies. And so those kinds of deals are more complicated than a financial investment uh, for a lot of different reasons. You know, uh, principally, those investors want more than financial return. Uh, they want a partner. They want a legitimate partnership. They want to get value out of the partnership. And so it's been interesting having so many potentially competing battery technology companies invested in us simultaneously. But I think we've done an excellent job managing all those partnerships, delivering value to all those partners, the things that they were looking for from that strategic investment. And as we might, as we moved to Series C, we recognized that now we really were in a position where we needed to, to raise a significant amount of capital to dramatically expand our, our current commercial production uh, infrastructure enough to be able to handle uh, EV volumes. And so 
at, at this point, we were ready to go for uh, bring financial investors into the mix. But again, we recognize that financial investors still aren't positioned that well to judge the merits of our technology relative to everything else out there. So we went down a specific strategy of looking for an automotive OEM, uh, automotive manufacturer, to be the lead for our Series C uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, at the end of the day, that's, that's our, our biggest long-term market, it's the EV space. And two, we recognize that validation in the automotive space would make it much easier for large financial investors to, to understand the validation of technology and participate in And so we looked at a number of auto OEMs uh, as potential leads, and probably about half a dozen or so in different conversations. We ended up picking Porsche. We picked Porsche. The brand is fantastic. Obviously, they're recognized as one of the technological leaders in the automotive space. But also, we recognize that the Porsche had a vision that was was very consistent with the way we view future. Porsche recognizes that the soul of the vehicle is, has been the engine and the transmission, particularly Porsche. And they recognize that's not the future of automotive. And so uh, they identified that the future of automotive is probably going to be the battery, the battery itself. And so they wanted to invest in the, the very best potential battery technologies and make sure that was group 14. So um, it's been a been a fantastic process working with Porsche. Uh, they really they really get the future of, of the automotive industry and they're aggressively uh, going into the EV space and, and recognize that our technology is transformational in that regard. That's amazing. I love how you guys have really been able to execute masterfully the um the strategic side, because typically, you know, it's interesting how you say that, because for other segments, when you bring in the strategics, then they tend to complicate things, you know, too quickly, uh, too soon. Uh, but it sounds like, you know, in how, how it varies, you know, when you go into a completely different segment, like, for example, this one, that is a little bit, you know, outside of that traditional hyper growth, uh, techie platform, you know, type of play. So, um, so really interesting. So now, let me ask you this for the people that are listening to to get it, you know, a little bit on the scope and size of the operation, anything that you can share around, you know, maybe number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. So we are in commercial production today. We have a commercial production facility uh, outside Seattle. We are looking to dramatically expand that infrastructure, and that's what we'll do with Series C. And so uh, our Series C will be ramping up to to build literally thousands of tons of production capacity over the next 18 months. And that's going to bring, uh, you know, right now we're you know, approaching about 100 employees total, but probably 18 months from now, it will be triple that, um, supporting that, uh, that significant uh, increase in manufacturing infrastructure. So we view ourselves not as a technology company at this point, but we are a manufacturing company. And so our focus is on scaling as quickly and as effectively as we can, just to keep up with the, the incredible demand from uh, the automotive and electronics segments. Um, and of course, we're looking at other applications in the future as well. You know, this is enabling technology for electrification of aviation, for example. When you think about being able to maybe have a regional uh, aircraft, uh, that 50% increase in range is, is, is really the tipping point between whether the business models work or don't work. 
and the ability to rapid charging. I mean, you think about in the aviation industry, turning uh, aircraft assets quickly when they're on the ground. They don't make money on the ground, you need them in the air. And so if you can take an electric aircraft and turn it in 20 minutes, uh, you can make a lot more uh, money and have a, a much better value proposition than if you need to charge it you know, all night or, or, or most of the day to get, to get the aircraft back in the air. So really excited about what we're doing in EVs and uh, some electronics, but, but looking at the next generation of, of applications as well, not too far down the road. And when it comes to uh, to people like you were alluding to and, and culture, you know, I know that you've uh, definitely brought you know, that uh, past experience from, you know, piloting, you know, helicopters and doing crazy stuff when it comes to the culture. I know that you always think about completing the mission and taking care of the people. So, uh, so tell us a little bit more about how you have gone about applying some of the lessons, you know, in that regard from, from being, you know, a pilot and being in war and in combat to, to now, you know, really the people that you're surrounding yourself to, to execute. Yeah, so a little little background on that on that anecdote. Uh, when I first showed up for my first unit after flight school, my battalion commander brought me to his office. You know, I was a young lieutenant, and he said, "Lieutenant, you only have to do two things in this unit to be successful. You need to complete the mission, and you have to take care of your people." And that has stuck with me since that 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 morning, and it makes a ton of sense when you think about it. Uh, it really can simplify business execution down to those two fundamental tenets. And so that's been, uh, again, foundational for the way I think about managing uh, the startups that I've been in. Obviously, you have to, you have to execute. Uh, execution is key. Uh, and at the end of the day, your, your people are what allow you to execute, uh, both today and, and tomorrow. And so taking care of the people is the most important resource. Uh, you, you really, you're taking care of your, your most critical resource. And, and, and fundamentally, uh, if it's not fun, don't do it. And 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 working with the team and and seeing them grow and prosper and and uh, uh, enjoy their their work experience is fun for me. And so, you know, for those reasons, uh, it, it it is it, it is that simple. Just execute and take care of the people, and it's going to work out. I love it. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight. And you wake up in a world, Rick, where the vision of Group 14 Technologies is fully realized. What does that world look like? So in that world, everything electric is powered by silicon batteries. And, you know, we're not the only, we're not, we're not looking for a global domination strategy here. There's going to be a lot of players that have great success in the silicon battery space. But I'm going to look back and say, hey, we were transformational. We triggered this this revolution in energy storage technology, and it's going to change the way we think about EVs. It's going to change the way we think about aviation. It's going to change the way we, we bring renewables onto the grid. It's going to change the way we use medical devices. It's, it's really about the electrification of everything, and silicon battery technology is going to be the primary driver in the transformation. Now, imagine if I put you into a time machine, Rick, and I bring you back in time, maybe to that moment where you were, you know, at your consulting gig thinking, hey, you know, maybe I want to do something. I want to start something on my own. And imagine you had the opportunity of going right there and sitting that younger Rick and giving that one younger Rick one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I'd say go for it. Don't hesitate. Don't wait. Uh, if, you, if you think it's something you need to do as an entrepreneur, just do it. Get the tools you think you need for sure. But as soon as you're ready, 
don't have a second thought and just attack the opportunity and just let it play out. I love that, Rick. Amazing. Well, hey, Rick, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Awesome. Thanks very much, Alejandro. I enjoyed it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.